If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 3. One uh, announcement. Many of you know we're partners in education with Park Street Elementary School. It's right down the road here. We've been doing some after-school sports programs with them for about a year, and we're about to start back up uh, soccer this week. We're looking for a male coach uh, for Friday afternoons to coach the boys. Uh, fourth and fifth grade, uh, it's from four to five for the next eight Fridays. I'm coaching Wednesday, and so I can help you if you need game plan for what to do during a practice. You certainly don't have to be a professional grade soccer player, but it'd be helpful if you knew something. Um, so if that's you, uh, you can grab me or Kim after the service or send one of us an email and we'll get you set up for Friday. There will be a couple of games that we're playing with some other elementary schools as well, but everything's going to be contained in that eight week of the next eight week, um, time. All right. John chapter three. So last week we were, look, we closed out John two. The big idea was this signs and they're very prominent in John's gospel sign is a miracle that reveals something about Jesus. The key to the sign is not the act itself, but what it says about who Jesus is. And there's different ways of responding to signs. We saw a good way of responding to signs. An appropriate way was with the disciples. Jesus turns water into wine and it, it causes them to believe in him on a deeper level. It signs as confirmation. There were things the disciples were already beginning to think and know and understand about Jesus' identity. They'd already said, you're a rabbi, we're following you. They've already said you're the king of Israel. They'd already recognized even on some level with their limited understanding that he was the Messiah. And so this sign confirmed those things for them. That's, a, that's the way we want to relate to these works of God is for them to confirm what we already know to be true about him. The way we don't want to relate is what the religious leaders did when Jesus cleansed the temple and they demand a sign as proof. You've got to justify to us, validate your authority. Who gave you the right to do this? And when people approach Jesus from that posture of hostility and that aggressiveness and that resistance, he doesn't give them anything. He doesn't, he doesn't play around with them. And what he says to them is the only sign you're going to get is the sign of my resurrection. He says it much more cryptically than that, but that's what he says. And that's what he would continue to say. And then we close chapter 2 looking at this kind of in-between group that was a little hard to get our hands around. This group of people who have responded to Jesus because of the signs, but Jesus doesn't trust them. Literally, Jesus doesn't believe in their belief in him. So we're going to look at those last few verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to go straight into chapter 3, as chapter 3 is an example of someone who fits in this group. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Jesus did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and asked and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could, provide, could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus said, surely they can't enter a second time into their woman's, into their mother's womb to be born. We're going to pause there. So, so we have Nicodemus. He's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of this group. They're called the Sanhedrin. It's uh, the 70 leading Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees, along with the chief priests. So there's 71 total, and they're basically the Supreme Court. Um, of the Jewish people. And Nicodemus is a part of that group, so he's somebody. 
and he approaches Jesus at night, and that's significant. I think literally he goes at night, he goes when the sun's down, and I think he's doing that because he's embarrassed. He's someone who spent his whole life studying the Old Testament, training to be a Pharisee, and he's approaching Jesus, who spent his whole life training to be a carpenter. And he's approaching him for spiritual insight and direction, and honestly, I think he's embarrassed, so he goes at night. He may be a little scared. There may be some other people uh, on the Sanhedrin, some of his co-workers or colleagues, who are already beginning to question who Jesus is and whether he's the kind of guy they need uh, to trust. And so he may not want to get sideways with any of those people, I'm not sure. But he's for sure, I think, embarrassed, and he may even be scared, and he approaches Jesus at night. And theologically, that's also important. John uses night always in a negative sense. Uh, Only bad things happen at night. Judas betrays Jesus at night. At night, we can't work. At night, we stumble because we can't see. And it reminds me of the very beginning of John's gospel, where where Jesus is described as the true light who comes into the world. And he Um, This light gives light to everyone, and he came to his own, to Jews, like Nicodemus, but the Jews did not receive him. And so we have this this, this question, and it actually stays open all the way until the end of John's gospel. What is Nicodemus going to do? He's someone who's in the dark spiritually, even though he's a religious leader. He has approached the light, which is really good. He's gone to the right source, but what's he going to do with Jesus? Is he going to accept, or is he going to reject? I think... Nicodemus approaches Jesus sincerely and genuinely. I don't think he's trying to trap him or trick him or I don't think he's trying to get him in trouble. I think he genuinely says, thinks Jesus has something that I need. He calls him a rabbi, which is I think is a pretty big deal. If you spent your whole life studying to be a rabbi, to give that title to someone who is a blue-collar guy who hadn't spent any time studying, didn't go to the right schools, didn't go to any school, wasn't trained under a particular Pharisee, to be able to say, hey, this guy's a rabbi, to me... Shows some level of respect and humility. He says, you know, we recognize that you've come from God. That's a big deal. We, no one could perform the signs that you're performing unless God sent him. He's got some level of understanding and maybe even belief about who Jesus is. And he's at least intrigued enough to approach him. But he's in that middle category. He's someone who believed because of signs. And we know from last week that that's insufficient. That's an inadequate reason. And Jesus doesn't trust people who are only coming to him because they've seen miracles. If people are only coming because of the signs, he tends to kind of hold them out here a little bit. He doesn't believe in their belief because that is a superficial faith. And so uh, he begins to engage with Nicodemus, and I think he's engaging with him sincerely. I don't think he's being coy or playing hard to get. I think he genuinely is trying to address what's going on in Nicodemus's heart and Nicodemus says to him well we know no no one can do what you've done unless God sent him and Jesus grabs on that idea of what people can and can't do and says well actually no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again he cuts straight to the heart of the matter with Nicodemus which is Nicodemus's relationship with God and whether or not he's in right relationship with God and Nicodemus responds very literally to what Jesus says and he says that ain't make sense How can an adult be born again? We're supposed to crawl back into our mother's womb, which is both impossible and gross. And what Jesus, and but Nicodemus, that's his response. Last week we saw a similar response from other religious leaders. Give us a, give us some proof. Show us uh, that we should believe you. And Jesus 
looks around and he says, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they think he's literally talking about the building they're standing in. They don't recognize he's talking about his body. We have religious leaders who should have some sense of what God is doing are clueless. They're in the dark still. And we don't know exactly how Nicodemus is going to respond. This next paragraph, which will be the last paragraph we look at, we're going to stop in the middle of this um, Jesus' talk. It just, it's, it's too long. Uh, but it, it's a bit confusing. But in your mind, recognize Jesus is trying to clarify what it means to be born again. So all, these next few sentences, it's, it's Jesus trying to clarify for Nicodemus, I think sincerely and genuinely. I don't think he's trying to be opaque. I don't think he's trying... Um, to confuse Nicodemus. He's genuinely trying to help him see and understand this is what it means to be born again. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus uses five different terms to refer to the same reality. That's one of the reasons it can get a little bit confusing. He's talking to Nicodemus about, in our language, we would talk about uh, salvation, getting saved, becoming a Christian, being reconciled to God. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he uses five different terms to talk to, to describe that. Seeing the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God, being born again, being born of water and the Spirit, being born of the Spirit. Five different ways of saying the same thing. How are we made right with God? How, in our language, in 2018, how does, what, what does it mean for someone to be saved or for someone to become a Christian? Five different ways of saying the same thing. And again, Jesus is he's trying to paint a picture for Nicodemus. So he says, okay, so born again, that didn't click. You took me literally. So how about this? Someone has to be born of, the, of water and the Spirit. What he's thinking is this verse that's up on the screen is the background. It's from Ezekiel 36. You can see what's there in blue. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is God talking to the nation of Israel. I'm going to take you out of the nations, gather you back, bring you into your own land, sprinkle clean water on you. So there we see born of water. I'll cleanse you from your impurities and idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and remove from you your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you. There we see born of the spirit and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So I think what Jesus is thinking is you're a rabbi. You're really familiar with the Old Testament. You've, you, you, you may even have most of it memorized. And as a Pharisee, you would be particularly concerned about passages that speak about the age to come, about what God is going to do in the future. As a Pharisee, you've decided that the most important thing you can do is keep the rules. And why do you keep the rules? Because keeping the rules is what's going to um, entice God or motivate God to act on our behalf. And so we're going to become expert keepers of the law and we're going to help ev other people become expert keepers of the law because we believe once we keep the law perfectly enough, then God will send the Messiah and restore our nation. And so I think Jesus is thinking, hey... Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's going to know this passage. And so, all right, born again didn't click. Does born of water and the Spirit click? Does that help you recognize what I'm saying has to happen here? You have to be born of the water, born of the Spirit. That's what God said through the prophet Ezekiel when he was going to do this new thing, when he was going to usher in this new age, when he was going to redeem and restore Israel, some of the imagery that he used. 
And then Jesus says to him, like, you know this, like produces like. Flesh produces flesh. The spirit produces spirit. You can't expect a physical or a biological birth to produce something spiritual. We know things don't work that way. It has to be a spiritual work to produce spiritual fruit. You know that. This should not be surprising to you, Nicodemus. What did you think all these passages in the Old Testament that spoke about the New Age, what did you think they meant? This shouldn't surprise you, and it is very surprising to Nicodemus. He's shocked as a Jewish man for somebody to tell him, hey, your birth wasn't enough. It doesn't matter that your mom and your dad were Jews. It doesn't matter that you were circumcised on the eighth day and you have this mark that says you're part of the chosen people. It doesn't matter that uh, in terms of your, your race, your biology, your lineage, your ethnicity, not, that, that, that you're part of the, the family of God. None of that matters. You actually have to be born again. That physical birth can't bring you into this spiritual reality. Let me give you another picture. It's like the wind. This is 25, 26, 27 A.D. Nobody gets atmospheric pressure. They don't know where, they don't get wind. They don't understand it, but they feel it. They experience it, even if they can't explain it. And that's what Jesus is saying. This, this being born again, being born of water and born of the Spirit, entering into the kingdom of God, seeing the kingdom of God, in our language, being saved, you might not be able to understand the process but you can certainly see the results of the process, Nicodemus, just like you can't understand the wind, but you know when the wind is blowing. There are obvious and, uh, signs, there's evidence of the fact that someone has indeed been born again. Jesus doesn't tell us what that evidence is. He just says to Nicodemus that, that there is. Actually, in 1 John, which is written either by the same guy that wrote the gospel or by one of his Students, someone who knew him really, really well. And he talks about being born again or being born of God way more than we see here from Jesus. And he helps explain it to us. And he says, here's some of the effects. Here are three of the effects. So if Jesus was, was talking to Nicodemus, he'd, he'd say, here's three ways that you'll know that you've been born again. People who've been born again or people who've been born of God live rightly. They live righteously. They live according to the standards of God. They love other people, particularly within the family of God. They believe that Jesus is the Christ or that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, in the New Testament, belief is not think, belief is trust. They're trust, basing their life around the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. That's some of the effects. That's not what causes you to be born again. Those are some of the things that flow out of the fact that you've been born again. You begin to see those realities operative in your life, living faithfully before the Lord, loving other people, living a life of faith, trusting that Jesus is the Messiah. One of the questions for us, and I think it's probably the, the main question when you're looking at this section, is why birth? Why does Jesus grab onto that particular metaphor when talking about entrance into the kingdom of God or when talking about being reconciled to God? Why does he use birth? I think specifically he uses birth because he's talking to a Jewish man who, whose understanding, whose entire frame of reference and perspective would be, I'm already in. 
from the day I was born, I was already in. I was already chosen. I was already on the team. I was already in the family. I was already part of the kingdom. However you want to say that. My relationship with God was set because I'm a Jew. And so I'm fine. So Jesus uses this language that would have been, I think, provocative to Nicodemus. And you can see his response. He doesn't, it's blowing his mind to think that his physical birth is not sufficient for relating rightly to God. Everything he had been taught and everything that he knew would have said, that's enough. You were born a Jew. You're part of the chosen people. The Gentiles have to do something to be made right with God, but you don't. You were born right with God. And so Jesus uses this terminology, I think, of being born again in order to kind of shake Nicodemus up. I think he recognizes in Nicodemus there's a genuine desire to understand who Jesus is and to relate to him rightly. And so he's speaking straight into that issue. Again, we'll see how Nicodemus responds in the months to come before we get to the end of it. But this is what we, at this point, for us, we may say, well, I'm not, I'm not a Jew. Does that apply to me? And you are born in, in or you, at least you live in the South, and you live in the Bible Belt, and we can adopt a similar mindset, I think, to Nicodemus pretty easily. I don't know if you've ever thought this. I've heard it uh, more times than I can count. Well, I was born a Christian. I've always been a Christian. There's no such thing. Nobody's been born a Christian. Nobody's always been a Christian. Everyone must be born again. You can become a Christian when you're really young. Whatever the age is, I don't know. You can become a Christian when you're really young. We've, seen, we've baptized people as young as five here. There may be instances of people being younger. I don't know. You can become a Christian when you're really young, but you, won't, you weren't born one. You haven't always been one. Everyone must be born again. We're all actually born as enemies of God, if you can believe that. That's what the Bible says. We're all born as sinners, separated from God. And we must be born again in order to enter into right relationship with him. I was raised in the church, or I was raised in a Christian home. Wonderful. Better than being raised in a pagan home. Better than being raised in a wild environment. Not enough. You must be born again doesn't matter how righteous and godly your parents are or were. doesn't matter if you were at church every Sunday and Wednesday night. Those, that, that's, all of that is irrelevant when it comes to your relationship with God, if you've been reconciled to him or not. What Jesus would say to us is what he'd say to Nicodemus. That doesn't matter. Your parents don't matter. The fact that you've been circumcised doesn't matter for us. If I can say this very respectfully and hear it for what it is, it doesn't matter if you were baptized as a baby. That's not what reconciles you to God. Baptism's not magic. Traditions that practice infant baptism, they also do confirmation. When you get old enough to understand, and then you get to say yes or no to what your parents said yes to. There's, no, there's nothing magic about that. Well, I've taken communion. It doesn't matter. You have to be born again. All of those rites and rituals, lineage, heritage, those things, are, they're not sufficient. What Jesus would say to us is what he said to Nicodemus. You have to be born again. Paul says not everyone who's a part of physical Israel is a part of spiritual Israel. What Jesus would say to us is not everyone who was raised in a Christian home, not everyone who was, who's been in church all of their life, not everyone who was baptized as a baby, that, that's not it. Have you been born again? And again, I say all that respectfully. All of those things are helpful, but none of them are determinative. Same for Nicodemus. Helpful for sure. 
that you were raised in this Jewish family. Helpful for sure that you studied to be a Pharisee, but none of those things are determinative. What is determinative is whether or not you've been born again. Have you been convicted of your need for a Savior? Do you recognize that you've lived a life apart from God and have some desire to be reconciled to Him? We call that conviction in the church. Have you repented, recognized your sin, and turned away from that and turned towards Jesus? That's the whole idea of being born of water, of being cleansed. And then have have you received the Holy Spirit into your life, being born of the Spirit? Becoming a Christian is not about making good people better. It's about bringing dead people to life. And that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. He regenerates us or he makes us new. Paul says we're new creations then. We just read from Ezekiel we, that the heart of stone that is resistant from God is taken out of us. And a heart of flesh that's responsive to him is given to us. And God himself takes up residence within us. That's what it means to be born again. And like the wind, we can't explain it. But there are definitely effects from that. We can see a tangible difference in our life, both internally and externally. We must all be born again. Everyone must be born again. For many of you, you've already made a decision. You made a conscious and a deliberate an intentional decision, and that's what it is. It's a conscious and deliberate and intentional decision at some point. It looks different based on people's age, for sure. But the heart of it is the same. I've recognized my need for Jesus. I recognize I'm separated from God, and I desire a Savior. I desire to be reconciled. Again, whatever level of capacity people have to understand that, it's going to look different. But the results are the same. I'm washed, I'm made new, and I begin to live in a different way in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many of you made that conscious and deliberate and intentional decision, and you can tell me the day or the month or the season of your life where that happened, and it's wonderful, that's great. The question then becomes, well, am I still living today as someone who has been born again? Am I currently living out of it, according to that reality, as someone who's been brought into this new mode and realm of existence? Am I living as one who is a citizen of the kingdom of God? Yes or no? Again, First John gives us a couple of things, and we'll close with this, a word of challenge and a word of encouragement, and you can decide which one you most need and which one resonates most with you this morning. The word of challenge, which I think is a pretty strong challenge to us, two different times in First John, we read that, that uh, if we're born again, those who are born of God, that we won't continue to sin. John actually says we cannot sin. And what you want to say is, well, you don't know me very well. I can do that pretty I'm good at that. We cannot sin because we've been born of God. Those who are born of God will not continue to sin. Now, I don't think John is talking about any type of perfection or you may have heard the, the, the phrase Christian perfection or sinless perfection. I don't think that's what John is talking about. I think what he's saying is our transformation from death to life from old creation to new, is so radical, is so uh, transformative, for lack of a better word, is so deep and fundamental that we can actually live without sinning. We won't, but we could. To me, it's it's theoretical. We can, we could live without sin. We won't because we're people and we're frail. But we could because of the Holy Spirit living within us. We've 
put off the old. Our old self that was a slave to sin is now dead. We're a new creation. The old is gone. We're brand new and the Holy Spirit lives within us and makes all the resources of heaven available to us that we can choose righteously. We don't always choose righteously, but we can. We're not compelled to sin. We're not bent towards sin anymore. We were. Prior to being born again, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Prior to being born again, we didn't have access to any of the resources of heaven to choose righteously. We were left to our own devices, to a broken will that was bent towards sin. It's just a matter of time. And all of those things are changed when we become Christians, when we're born again. Again, for because we're frail and because we're people, we're going to sin. But we're not compelled to sin. We don't have to any longer. Most of us don't uh, fully grasp the nature of the transformation that takes place when we're born again. For many of us, I think we, we think of salvation in legal terms. It happens over there in the courthouse. I was guilty and God declared me righteous. It's totally true. It's what the Bible says. I was guilty and God declared me righteous. But it's inadequate. That's not a full understanding. A fuller understanding of what it means to be reconciled to God is relational. You were guilty and God declared you righteous, but there's, there's salvation at its heart underneath that legal declaration. And, and through it and above it and in front of it and behind it is the heart of God to be reconciled to his people. It's the heart of a father for God so loved that he gave. His desire is for relationship and salvation is fundamentally relational. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. Not that you were that you were guilty and declared righteous. This is eternal life that you know me and the one who sent me. It's a relational reality. And when we begin to understand that, then that makes this whole idea of continuing to sin repulsive to us. Think of the people in your life who you love the most. How often do you do things on purpose to tick them off and to hurt them. Not often, right? You still screw up every now and again for sure. But how often do you intentionally say, I know this is going to make her mad, so I'm going to do it anyway. There's an understanding relationally. And the more you love someone, what? The less likely you are to intentionally hurt them. The less likely you are to intentionally offend them the less likely you are to intentionally betray them. You don't do those things. The same thing is true in our relationship with the Lord. The issue for us who continue to live a sinful pattern of behavior, I don't mean we sin occasionally. I'm not talking about isolated sins. I'm talking about a pattern of rebelliousness before the Lord where there's this area of, of my life that I'm just not going to give you access to. I'm going to continue to do what I want to do in this area. Period, dot, the end. That level of rebelliousness and selfishness, honestly, if you, if you understand the great love that God has for you, you won't do that. The issue for most of us with sin is when we're struggling with sin, we try to stop sinning. And I would say, what if you start loving What if rather than focusing on how do I quit sinning, you said, According to Ephesians 3, God, give me power to understand how wide and high and long and deep is your great love for me. 
I want to know how much you love me. And as I begin to grasp how much you love me, then that's going to make this thing a whole lot less attractive. And as you deepen my love for you, that's going to make it a whole lot easier for me to say yes to you and no to anything that would be offensive to you. Just like in all of your primary relationships. The issue is a lack of love. Almost always. If you begin to understand salvation relationally, that God's desire was not to forgive you of your sins, just to forgive you of your sins, but his desire was to forgive you of your sins in order to remove the barrier that separates you from him. His, the, forgiveness is the means to an end. The end is reconciliation. It's relationship. It's intimacy. It's knowing. Then suddenly that makes sin a whole lot less attractive. So let me challenge you this morning. Live righteously. If you're struggling to live righteously in some area of your life, my encouragement, don't feel condemned. Don't beat yourself up. Don't uh, engage in any patterns of behavior modification or sin management. How can I put enough filters on my computer so I don't... Don't do all that. Say, God, what I, I need, a deeper understanding, a deeper revelation of your love for me. And I need you to deepen my love for you. Those other things are okay. They just don't deal with the heart. And love does. Maybe this for you. You may say that that's okay. Feel all right on that area. You need to be encouraged this morning. John says those who are born of God have overcome the world. They have victory over the evil system controlled by Satan and opposing God. Do you live that way? Do you live as one who has overcome, as one who has victorious? Now, you're going to continue to suffer and struggle. Ultimate victory will come when Jesus returns and establishes the kingdom on earth that it is in heaven. That's not happening today, maybe tomorrow, but not today. You're either going to die or Jesus is going to return. And in between either today and that day, either your death or Jesus' return, we're all going to continue to suffer and struggle to some degree. I just wonder how much... Or how many of us struggle and suffer more than we need to? Are you aware that right now you're seated with Jesus in heavenly places? That's what Ephesians says. Do you know that? Do you live that? We talk all the time about being adopted into God's family, being sons and daughters. Is that reality for you? Do you live as someone who is a co-heir with Jesus? Do you live as someone who, who the Father says, everything I've got is yours? Is that your reality? Doesn't mean you're not going to suffer and struggle anymore, but... Are, are, are you a, maybe a bit of an Eeyore in some ways where you're living defeated and maybe struggling more than is necessary? Satan's the best liar ever. He's really good at it. And his lies sound really good. They're, they have a ring of truth to them. And for many of us who would say, if you would be honest and say, I'm living a bit defeated this morning, maybe the issue is that you're, you've been blinded. By the enemy, you're believing lies, either about yourself or about the Lord. And so you, you have overcome. You just don't realize that you've overcome. Jesus has defeated sin and Satan and death, but that's not reality for you. You have been adopted into God's family, but you, don't, you live like you're a servant and not like you're a child. And so maybe for you this morning, that's what you need to grab onto. And again, it's not about doing better. The picture being born again, how many of you and how many of us had anything to do with our birth? None, we don't. It's a great picture. It's not work on our part. We're not having to try harder. 
to be born again. Think again about that kind of the idea of, of a biological or a physical, a natural birth. It's not like it, it's, you don't have to, it, it happens. I know it hurts the mom. It's not necessarily work for the baby. It's just time. And so what does that look like? Just spiritually, make the parallel there. This isn't about you doing better. Again, the, the idea is never to make bad people good or make good people better. The idea is to bring dead people to life. And that's receiving an invitation that's been extended to us. And the same thing is true. We continue in that same vein. And Galatians 3, Paul is talking to the Galatians. He says, who's bewitched you? You've begun in the Spirit. Now you're trying to finish in your flesh. That's just dumb. It doesn't make sense. Remember what got you here. It was faith and trust in the Lord and in his work for you. And so if you're someone who this morning would say, I feel a bit like Eeyore. I feel defeated or I feel discouraged. Don't try to cheer yourself up. That's not what we're saying. You don't need any chicken soup for your soul. What you need is to trust. Have your eyes open. Jesus, show me, where, show me what, what it means for me to be seated with you in heavenly realms. Jesus, show me the areas where I'm believing lies about myself or about our Father. Jesus, show me what it looks like to live fully as your bro- one of your brothers or sisters, as a co-heir with you, as a son and daughter, son or daughter of God. I, I don't get that, and I need you to help me with that so I can live into that reality faithfully and daily. It's a different, maybe, approach for some of us to our ongoing Christian life. I would encourage you this morning, if you're struggling with a sin issue, Repent for sure and attack it with love. God, I pray that you would give me grace to know how much you love me and to deepen my love for you. If you're feeling defeated, if you're struggling, God, I pray that you would open my eyes to the truth of what you've done for me and of who I am in you. Let's take a minute and pray. There may be some of you this morning who would say, I've never... I've never been born again. I've been coming to church a bunch or not, but I've never been born again. I've always seen myself as a good person. That's irrelevant. Everyone must be born again if we want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not difficult. It's simple. You repent of your sin. God, I recognize I've been living apart from you. I've been trying to do this thing in my own power. been making my own way. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be reconciled to you. I pray you forgive me for living selfishly, for living pridefully, for living greedily. For living apathetically, for living unkindly, whatever it is, I pray that's he'll, 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 I pray you forgive me, and that's the washing of water, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and would fill me, that you would take up residence in my heart, that you would lead me and guide me and direct me, that you would write the law on my heart. I don't want to be a legalist. 
He's trying to figure out how far is too far. I don't want to be looking for loopholes in the fine print. Is this a sin or is this not a sin? I pray that you would write the law on my heart and that you would move me by your spirit to live obediently and faithfully before you. You can pray that prayer and you can be born again this morning. And that's the beginning, just like birth physically. It's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Many of you have prayed that prayer and you're walking with Jesus and so maybe this morning you need to be challenged a bit. Are you living righteously or if you're, are you living with compromise? Have you decided that this area or this issue is, it's okay. You're doing better than most. And so you're allowing yourself to kind of dabble in sin. This morning, would you hear the challenge from John? If you've been born again, if you've been born of God, we, we, we can't. We're not going to continue to sin. Would you hear that not as condemnation? Would you hear that not as some impossible goal that you're never going to achieve with this invitation into a deeper level of relationship with God that your understanding of his love for you and your love for him would be so great and deep and profound? You wouldn't even desire to do things that are offensive to him. You wouldn't, th- those temptations, they wouldn't even be temptations anymore. And you can just pray that before the Lord. God, I confess. I've got this pet sin and I enjoy it. But this morning in faith, I want to repent. Pray that you would forgive me. And pray that you would deepen my understanding of your love for me. And that you would deepen my love for you. Again, God, I don't want to be a legalistic, technocratic type Christian who's always looking for a loophole. I want to be someone who's not saying how, 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 how close to, can I get towards sin, but someone who says, what does intimacy look like this side of heaven? How deep can I go in relationship with you? And if I'm honest right now, that doesn't necessarily stir my heart, but I desire for it to. And so I invite you to do a work in me this morning. You may be someone and you're, you're living defeated and, and what you need to pray and what you need to hear is encouragement. You've already overcome because you're in Christ and he's already defeated sin and Satan and death. And so because you're in him and those things aren't the boss of you anymore. So God, open my eyes. I've been blinded by these lies from the enemy. I don't know what it is to be seated with you in heavenly places. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't know what it is to live fully as a son or a daughter. I don't know what it is to recognize I'm a co-heir with Jesus. I need you to show me those things. Show me those realities. Empower me to approach life from that perspective as someone who's already overcome. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and you work in the hearts of every man and woman, every student in this room. I pray that none would be condemned, that all would be encouraged, and that we would respond in a way that's most appropriate to the way you're leading us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have some ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. But I would say if one of those three areas resonates with you, please let us uh, pray for God to work in that area of your life in the next couple of minutes.